0: Hey folks, this is Kevin. Today's episode features a few instances of abuse. And I know that for some listeners, that sort of thing can trigger stressful, traumatic sorts of feelings. So I wanted to warn everyone beforehand. Now here's the show. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is the Bombay Royale. Behind me now, we are calling today's episode Fighting Back. Because on today's episode, we have two very strong, very smart, very talented young ladies who tell stories of facing traumatic shit that happened in their past and finding the wherewithal to move onward and upward. In a little bit, we're going to hear from comedian Liz Stewart. Wow, did she throw everyone for a loop at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles last week? Well, whenever it was. (laughs) At the Nerd Melt Theater in L.A. But before that, beautiful young actress Ellie Jackson... Who took our story studio workshop here in New York? She told a lot of wonderful stories in class, but this one was when I asked her if she would come over to my apartment to record one-on-one for the podcast here. So without further ado, here is Ellie Jackson with a story we call I Can See Clearly Now.
1: The summer between 6th and 7th grade, I attended band camp, and one afternoon as I was walking with two of my cabin mates, I asked them where Amanda was. Amanda was another girl in our cabin, and within the first couple days of camp, she had procured herself a camp boyfriend, this kid named Nate. My cabin mates informed me that Amanda and Nate had skipped lunch so they could sneak back to our cabin when they knew the counselor wouldn't be in there and make out. This information stopped me dead in my tracks, and without thinking, I just blurted out in real earnest sincerity You guys, we have to warn her because deep kissing can lead to other things. And this stopped the other girls dead in their tracks too, and they turned and looked at me, their eyes narrowing, and I suddenly felt what a deer must feel when it realizes the wolves have singled it out as the weakest in the herd. As time slowed down and my brain caught up to my mouth, I realized what a totally embarrassing, humiliating, socially disastrous thing I had just said. And so I start laughing, trying to play it off as a joke, is what our health teacher would say. In my defense, I will say that deep kissing totally does lead to other things. And I was right. But in that moment, I, you know, was mortified and realized that you're not supposed to let other people know how, you know, sexually naive you are. That this is, you know, an embarrassing thing. I got better at covering that up. And it didn't really affect me again until years later when I was 18 years old. I was a freshman in college. And I was going with some friends to a frat party. I made my first mistake of the night when I said to Lisa that this guy across the room was really cute. And Lisa had gone to high school with some of the guys in this frat, which is why we were there to begin with. And so before I can stop her, she goes and tells her friend that I said that this guy was hot. And the next thing you know, I see him across the room whispering in cute guy's ear. And then the next thing you know, he's coming over to us and, you know, we're starting to have a conversation. And, and the next mistake I made was thinking that this really cute senior who kept refilling my red plastic cup all night long, was interested in me and enjoying our conversation. And I decide that when he offers to take me back to my dorm, I say yes, and then he suggests maybe go to his place instead, and that seems like a fine idea, and, and so we do. And, and I think he's hot, and I want to make out with him. And we're doing that, but then suddenly it's more than that, and I'm just in his dark, really messy bedroom in his apartment. And somehow, despite all my protests, he's managed to wrestle all of my clothes, including my underwear, off of me. And I have both of my hands clamped down as tight as I can between my legs, because that's the only thing that's preventing him from sticking his penis inside me. And. All the time, I'm telling him that I don't want to sleep with him. And meanwhile, he has his mouth right in my ear, in this really twisted way, whispering sweetly reasons that I should have sex with him. And as I'm lying there, and my brain is just racing, and I'm just so exhausted from from all the alcohol, and from his physical strength that I, as like a last ditch effort, say to him, I'm a virgin. And I thought that that would finally be the bullet point on the list I'd already given him that would get him to to stop and to understand that I was serious. But he's on top of me and I can see the look on his face change when I say this. And I realize that this information is actually not going to get him to stop but that it's only inspired him to try harder i just sort of realize that there's no way out of this situation and that i'm not going to be able to prevent what's about to happen He drives me home to my dorm and I don't talk about it to anyone the next day or ever really because I was really ashamed of what had happened and embarrassed about what had happened. And even though I tried to tell myself that it wasn't my fault, I also knew that it was my fault because I had been stupid enough to get into that situation and I had given up if I had fought harder or longer or been stronger if I hadn't said something so stupid, if I hadn't given up, then I could have prevented that from happening. And so it wasn't something that I wanted to talk about with anyone. And what Good was talking about it going to do anyway, because this had happened and there was nothing that could undo it. So the, the best way to get over this is to just move on and forget about it and move forward. And so I did move on. And I employed varying different tactics for getting over this. And the first few years after this happened was sort of one large cycle. That then, as years have gone on, the cycle repeats itself on shorter and shorter loops. And But it basically always starts out with, with a long period of abstinence. I will have sex with someone and it's not a pleasant experience. So I just you know, have the realization that I'm never going to enjoy sex. This is just something that's not going to be a part of my life and too bad. But, oh, well, there's other things in life that are more important than this anyway. So I'm just not going to pursue any sort of relationship. Then I think, no, Ellie, that's crazy to think that you could never have this. This is a bad thing that happened to you, but that doesn't mean that everyone's like that. You need to find someone who you can trust and be vulnerable with. And that's when you're going to be able to have a meaningful and fulfilling relationship. But then I started to think about all of this baggage I have, all this shit. And I don't want to put that onto someone that I really like and care about. And, and if this person who I really like finds out this thing about me, they're not going to like me anymore. And that's way too scary and way too dangerous. And so really what I need to do is I need to get over this stuff on my own. I need to be able to be comfortable with my sexuality in these situations, but I can't do that with someone that could hurt me. I wanna be able to engage in sex in a way where I feel in control and powerful. And so the best way to do that is to become involved with people that I don't actually like or care about. Because then it's my choice, and I'm in charge, and I know that they can't hurt me. But being with someone you don't really like that much is ultimately pretty fucking unsatisfying. And so what's the point of that? I'd rather just be alone. So I guess I'm just going to be alone forever, and I'm never going to enjoy sex. Recently, I met this guy, Dave. Dave is the quintessential example of that annoyingly all-too-common 30-something New York actor guy who just revels in his own arrested development and gets away with it because he has this very snake oil salesman-type charm. From every interaction that I've had with Dave... I just think that he is this egotistical ass hat and and there's n- nothing about him that's appealing to me. So he's perfect, you know? And one night I end up going home with him, putting an end to my most recent stretch of abstinence. The next day, I feel totally fine about this choice. I don't like Dave. I have absolutely no interest in dating him. And the sex wasn't great, but it never is for me, but it wasn't bad. It didn't make me feel horrible about myself. So I'm viewing this as progress, you know? I also decided since it had been a couple of years that I would make myself an appointment to see the lady doctor. So then a few days before my doctor's appointment, I ended up sleeping with Dave again. And uh, (laughs) again, it wasn't great, but it was my choice. And this is the type of thing that a young New York woman can do and that's you know I I'm empowered and I feel great about this. So, it's a few days later and I'm at Planned Parenthood. The healthcare associate who is going through my intake forms and taking my blood pressure and height and weight and all of that is getting towards the bottom of the form where they ask about sexual trauma. And so I'm prepared for the question that I know is coming, which is do you want to talk about it? And I have my answer locked and loaded, ready to go. And that answer is no. But this woman is persistent. And so she starts to tell me about how Planned Parenthood has social workers. And actually, there's a social worker here today. And if I like, she could see if that woman has time to see me while I'm here. And I absolutely don't want that to happen. But I don't want to be in this conversation any longer either. So I just say what I think is the quickest way out of this, which is, yeah, sure, you can check with her, I guess. Because I figure there's no way this woman is going to actually have time to see me because she's a social worker at Planned Parenthood. So I get my charts and I'm sent on my way to the lab and they draw blood for the AIDS test. And and then I'm back in the waiting room and only a few minutes goes by. I hear my name called again. So I get up and as I am following this petite, middle-aged woman down the hall, I realize very quickly that she is not doctor she is the social worker and I have been tricked and as I sit down in her chair and she closes her office door I'm just getting so upset and I start acting sort of like a sullen child who's been brought to the principal's office against their will and so she says you know I understand that you want to talk to someone today I'm like well no not really she continues with oh so so you've talked about this before and I'm just like yeah I mean no, front, maybe. I mean, it was 12 years ago. Okay, I'm over it. I'm fine. Besides, I know that so much worse stuff has happened to so many more people. So it's silly for me to even still be upset about this. And she interjects with the stupid, pointless, well, what? this isn't what happened to other people. This is what happened to you. And you know what? It's just such a social worker waste of time And then she asks, do you think what happened to you has affected your ability to have a fulfilling relationship? And it just made me so angry because it's just such a stupid fucking question because of course it has. And so I just snap at her without thinking, well, I mean, I only ever sleep with people I don't care about because I can't be physically intimate and emotionally intimate with the same person. And as I hear myself screaming this at her, I realize, for the first time, that this is true. (laughs) And I feel this, like, shift inside me. And I realize that I'm not over this. And it's not okay. And I'm not strong enough to deal with this on my own. And at the same time, like she's not either she is not the person to help me with this but I realize that I need help so I take from her the very blurry over photocopied list of therapists that she informs me is not up to date but it's maybe a place to start when I'm ready (laughs) and I'm ushered back to the waiting room and she tells me that the next person who calls my name will be the doctor and then I'll you know be done for the day and so I'm sitting in the waiting room and (laughs) the view is playing silently on the flat screen on the wall and I'm sort of paying attention to the book that I brought but mostly I'm just thinking about about this conversation that I just had and this realization that I knew that this had affected me but I thought it just had to do with sex And that I've now realized that it's so much bigger and so much deeper than that. And I've spent the last 12 years unable to be in any sort of meaningful relationship. And I'm clearly not as smart or as self-analytical as I thought I was. I mean, hello, I just slept with this guy two days ago who I don't even like. And the reason I slept with him is because I don't like him. And that more than that, I actually thought that this was progress, that this was some strong choice I was making that I was getting better. But really, Dave is just another example of this really deeply fucked up thing. Another example of this cycle that I clearly have no idea how to get out of. And this self-reflection turns into just a really pathetic sense of feeling bad for myself because here I am alone in a Planned Parenthood waiting room, having just had to talk to a stranger about being raped, and I'm really tired, and I've been sitting here for an hour, and my finger hurts from the AIDS test, and I am never going to find love, and I don't know how to fix myself, and I just can't deal with the thoughts inside my head anymore, so I slam the book shut, and as I look up, I am confronted with Dave's snake oil smile on this television set advertising toothpaste and for a moment i just can't even breathe because i don't understand what's happening and then the insane synchronicity of all of this hits me and i just start laughing hysterically and crying hysterically at the same time because what like No one will believe me when I tell them what happened, and I'm just alone in the plant-parent waiting room, taking a few minutes to get my choking sobs under control, just in time for my name to finally get called so I can go have a pap smear. It was that release of tears and laughter at the same time that made me finally realize that I I really need to get help. And it still took me like another four months to actually call a therapist. I still don't really like having to talk about this. And I don't like to admit that I'm not strong enough or smart enough to fix this on my own. But I feel confident now that it is okay to ask for help and that it's okay to want to fix what's broken that that we all do deserve to ask for help and to be okay. And And I don't know yet exactly how I'm going to eventually move on from this experience. But I trust now that I will be able to. And I know that That will happen. And I also know no matter how many people have broken down hysterically in a Planned Parenthood waiting room, I am definitely the only person to have done it because of a Crust commercial. (laughs) so oh.
2: school, I was constantly accused of ruining class photos because I was making a weird face. And um, I'd always be like, I'm not making a weird face. That's just my face. <laughs> but uh, apparently, like years later, I would learn that whenever you take a photo, you should... Like, not look like you're excited to be there. Like, don't do, like, a wide grin because it just makes you horizontal, makes you look a little haggard. You want to drop your chin, raise your eyes, and look like you're too cool to be there. And uh, that's something that I've never been able to master because I'm just not good at being cool or apathetic. I always have an opinion about everything. Like, uh, this is how cool I was when I was in school. I um, When I was in third grade... I started a petition to boycott recess until nuclear power was no longer considered to be a viable solution to the energy crisis. (laughs) I got one signature. Their name was Recess is Cool, You Have No Friends. I think it was this girl named Brandy. She was one of those people who spelt it weird. She was Brandy with an I. I think it was her who put it in there. And you know what? She wasn't wrong about me not having friends at school. I didn't have too many friends, but I had good friends at the house. I had uh, George Carlin and Richard Pryor, and we would hang out every night when I'd listen to their records. And I, I didn't think that anybody in that class would be able to offer me Anything more important than a dissertation on the seven dirty words that you can't say on television, you know, so I'm not really missing anything, you know, plus, I would never have even been in the same class as those people, if they had offered an AP US history class, and they weren't doing that, you know, they were like mouth breathers, you know, so we shouldn't have been in the same class in the first place and sure it stung a little to be told that I didn't have any friends but you know my theory on that was that all of these like 12 year olds wearing makeup uh 12 in third grade oh well um uh, <laughs> They 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 didn't they didn't graduate on time is what I'm saying but all of these like kids running around wearing eyeliner they're all going to be pregnant by the time that they are twelve you know uh, or fifteen so what's the what's the loss uh, no no friends no problem you know um, and I had bigger things on the horizon you know while they were out you know learning about beauty tips and how to be a contributing member to a social unit I. I was fast-tracking myself to becoming the world's first female president of the United States, mm? or an actor, or an actor, either one. I was keeping my options open. <laughs> um, some of you guys are probably thinking, that's an assertion, I don't know you, um, uh, some of you guys are probably thinking, wow, she's got it together, how can I get some of that? Well, hold on, Tiger. This level of freaky is not something that just happens overnight. It takes years, as well as both nurture and nature working in tandem, to culminate what you see before you. See, uh, my father was a sociopath. Um, I say it was because he said, "Ha ha, who wins now? I do." Um, my mother is a paranoid schizophrenic. Genetic lottery winner, a table for one. Uh, but don't worry, I don't have either one of these mental afflictions, although I really sincerely wish on occasion that I could be a sociopath. I would, like, really, really want to be, because if I didn't have empathy, I would totally be further along in Hollywood. I would just step on the necks of anyone who got in my way, regardless, you'd just suck up to people who could do something for me, you know? I'd have, I'd have the world by the balls. Um, uh, But I bring this up because, of course, uh, I'm going to come off a little freaky every now and then when those are my role models, right? Even in a family of freaks, I was still the freaky one. I was labeled as autistic because I would rarely speak. Turns out I wasn't autistic. I just didn't have shit to say to those people. (laughs) My father was South African, and the only thing he hated more than black people was disobedient women, which is why I was left out of the will. Um, It's fine, it's fine, because all of the cash was from sales of blood diamonds, so I'm probably better off without it. Um, My parents divorced when I, at the age of two, caught my father... Breaking my mom's back it, right, and I physically attacked him. I was like two years old, like thirty five pounds, and uh, they divorced, and uh because he held a knife to my throat and and I'm like, well, fucking pussy, who needs a fucking knife for a two year old right <laughs> like uh like, sincerely? You know, so it's like my earliest memory, which might have something to do with why I had a difficult time making deep, meaningful connections with men. Maybe. might have something to do with it. I'm not a doctor. I have played a doctor on TV. It was on I Didn't Know I Was Pregnant 2009, episode six. Look it up. So I'm no doctor, but I might have something to do with it. That, And I also ended up uh, working in a strip club as a waitress for two years. For two years. I made so much fucking bank. Um, so uh, we ended up living with my mother, who, of course, is a paranoid schizophrenic. And she, she would tell us that she was an employee of the government. She worked for the government as a spy. And that if we back-talked her, snipers positioned on the neighbor's roof would shoot us in the head. And I... I like to call people's bullshit. So I'd always be like, well, tell your men to take the shot. And then I'd lean out the window and be like, take the shot! They never took the shot, because they weren't there. So, uh, my mother uh, was uh, raised in the Assemblies of God Church. My grandparents were missionaries for the Assemblies of God Church. Sounds great on paper, but if you don't convert, you don't get the food. So, wipe those flies uh, from your eyes and uh, find Jesus or nobody eats. Um, But uh, the Assemblies of God Church is a church that makes the snake handlers look like reasonable people. And um, it's perfect for uh, paranoid schizophrenics because her hallucinations were hailed as visions. So uh, whenever she would see, you know, demons in the living room or hear angels who told her that I was out breaking curfew, it was (laughs) completely and totally a normal occurrence for these people. Like nobody said, hey, hold on a minute. Uh, You're seeing shit. Uh, Nobody said that. And I, myself, I had received uh, three baptisms and two exorcisms. (laughs) It's true. It's true. I was never actually possessed by the devil, but it was Texas, and I'm a woman with an opinion, so that needs to be stopped immediately. Um, One day, when I was arguing with my mother about going on a field trip— she decided that I needed an exorcism, and she was going to do it herself. She's a DIY kind of gal. Um, I was fifteen, and uh, we got into a big old tussle. She uh, tried to kill me. Um, uh, I know not, it, it She had uh, pinned me and uh, was sitting on my chest and reciting the Lord's Prayer rebuking the devil out of me both of my parents have tried to kill me is what i'm saying at some point and uh this was uh, kind of my breaking point because she had a uh, towel over my face and was like uh you know devil be out you know uh, and all of the rest of the lord's prayer i don't think the devil be out is actually part of it but you get my point um so uh i'd never ever hit her back and i boxed for 8 years when I was a kid cuz I wanted to be a ninja and I uh and I know boxing isn't part of ninjutsu but you know it, I did what I could with what I had um and I'd never ever hit her back and my mom was so fucking abusive to like all of us in really every way and I said uh i'm not going to allow this and and you're not going to kill me, so I uh pulled my legs over her head, pulled her back, and uh jumped up, and was like, all right you 're not allowed to touch me ever and none of the and none of my uh sisters ever and um she promptly grabbed my hair and tried to pull me down again. And I said, um, don't make me hurt you." <laughs> and she didn't let go, so I hit her. And then I said, oh, "Don't make me do it again." And she went and let go. And I hit her again. And then she bit me on the face. Like who bites somebody <laughs> on the fucking face, man? Like, who, kind of, who does that, right? So I, I hooked her in the temple, and um, I found out two things that day. Um, one, uh, nobody has the right to put their hands on you, especially not someone... who's supposed to love you. And two if you hit somebody right in the temple, they will fucking drop. (laughs) And, like, it's like magic. (laughs) And she promptly fell to the ground and started to convulse. And I called 911 said, hey, uh, you need to send an ambulance. Um, Mama tried to kill me. Um... It's uh, cool she's twitching on the second uh, floor bathroom. So I'm leaving the door open, taking my little sister, I'm taking the dog, and we're getting the fuck out of here. They took her to the hospital. I wasn't there for that. I had fled and uh, went on an indefinite stay of like, hey, can I uh, sleep on your couch for like maybe forever? Um, uh, I'm also bringing my little sister. She's a thief, and the dog is not house trained so it's win 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 for everybody um so mom after her stay in the hospital she was evaluated and committed to a mental institution i was like oh you know how long i've been trying to do this i would have hooked her in the temple when i was five and uh it was actually kind of validation because all this time i thought i was the crazy one like i thought i was what was wrong Turns out, it was everybody else. (laughs) So later, I would um, enter the food service industry um, and support myself, get an apartment, put myself through college, and come out here to L.A. with all you guys who are uh, freaks yourselves, you know? I mean, L.A. is so great. It's like this melting pot of, like, fucked-up people, you know? <laughs> like, everybody in here, at least one-third of you got touched in your bathing suit area by somebody who shouldn't have been touching you, man. And I love you for it. And... And, uh... <laughs> and it's great, because all this time I felt so, like, freakish and, like, I... Never... This needs more laughs. Um, (laughs) Like, I would never have a home. And by not being normal and by being such a freak, I have a home with all you fucked up people. And the guys pushing their shopping carts up and down Sunset Boulevard yelling at cars, you know? Like, they're my peeps. And I'm so glad. Like, I mean, of course it's going to be painful. It's always going to be painful. But I'm glad it happened because when people say, hey, Liz, how's LA going? Is it hard for you out there? I can say, I've seen worse. (laughs) If I can survive my family and put my abusers, there've been a couple, in the hospital. They all ended up in the hospital at some point. I think I can handle a callback for jurgens. <laughs> Thank you guys so much.
0: Is it For this episode, folks, this is Dale Earnhardt Jr. Jr. behind me now. And what you just heard was the remarkable Ms. Liz Stewart, comedian in Los Angeles. You can find her at lizstewart.net. She is something else. Before Liz, we heard from the beautiful Agnes Obel, an excerpt of her song, The Curse, and that recording of Liz's story is a perfect example of what our New York and Los Angeles shows are like. They happen every fourth Thursday in Los Angeles at Nerd Melt, in New York at The Pit. But we also travel around a lot. On January 31st, we're in San Francisco with Dana Gould, Stephen Tobolowski, Nato Green, and Brendan Walsh. On February 1st, we're in Seattle with Dan Savage. On February 7th, we're in Dallas. On February 27th, we're back in New York and L.A. And on March 8th, we're in San Diego. We need pitches. If you are in San Diego and you would like the chance to be on Risk, send us your story pitches. You can send them right to me at Kevin at Risk-Show.com. Same goes for people in Reno. We're coming to Reno soon, so we need those pitches as well. Don't forget there are many more episodes of Risk than are currently available in the free iTunes feed in the podcast section. There are classic episodes of Risk if you look in the Albums section of iTunes, including our beloved All-Star episodes. Great stuff not to be missed. And if you are interested in storytelling, go to thestorystudio.org. We teach all kinds of workshops for whatever your needs may be. We teach storytelling for business, for dating, for job interviews. Uh, We teach corporate workshops for business staffs. We teach one-on-one storytelling over Skype. We have our online video course that you can take in your own time. So check us out at thestorystudio.org. Don't forget, Risk is a part of the Maximum Fun network of podcasts and we're listener supported we need your help to keep risk running at this juncture in our history almost every penny we make goes right back to the people who helped to make this show and the people who teach our classes but with your help we can grow so go to maximumfund.org donate and become a member today or make a one-time donation but be sure to earmark your contribution for risk. Meanwhile, please tell everyone you know about the podcast and tell people they can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Risk Show. And of course, online at risk show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.